Have you, uh, have you ever tried to change someone's heart? It may be that you've had your eye on that someone special. Her laughter floats across the room. His smile lights up your day. You find yourself unable to concentrate on anything else than the possibility, no, the inevitability, that she, that he might love you like you love. But frankly, that person doesn't know you exist. There's nothing you can do to change their heart. Or perhaps go to the other end of the relational spectrum. Perhaps you have an enemy. Uh, not just someone you don't get along with particularly, but, but a genuine, out-to-hurt-you enemy. This person despises the ground that your feet have trod. Uh, when I was at school, I was bullied by an older guy in the year above me. He didn't know me. He didn't know that really I wasn't the loser that he saw me as, that I was a real human being, witty and interesting and full of insightful views on different things. Nothing I could do could change his heart. Hearts are unbelievably powerful, impervious things. You can't crack them with a pile driver. It takes a person themselves to do that job. And Isaiah was the prophet of God to a people with hearts of unbreakable, unmovable, rock-hard, cold stone. As we've said, we've been in a sermon series on the prophecy of Isaiah, that jewel in the Old Testament prophetic crown. And over the next weeks, we will soar to the heights of the love and faithfulness of God. We will join Isaiah in his audience with the Holy One of Israel. We will hear great promises of a child who will be born, who will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We will see a vision of the one who is a leader upon whom the Spirit of God will rest. A real leader, not like the people we have, whose delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and we shall sing salvation songs. And that's just the overture, the first 12 chapters. Tonight, however, we begin Isaiah not with glory, but with diagnosis. For the problem needs careful analysis. You see, the problem of stony, cold, hard hearts is one that we face and we'll see is even a challenge for God. Stony, hard hearts is an issue that is all too familiar to us if we have eyes to see it. We see hard hearts all around us every day in offices and parks and shops and perhaps at home. People oblivious to the overwhelming goodness and grace that God has shown them. And perhaps we see hard hearts in ourselves, within, as we examine our own hearts from time to time. Isaiah was God's prophet to a people with hearts of stone and my prayer as uh, we hear his word, God's word, over these next weeks is specifically that our hearts will be softened and expanded and made wonderfully tender, a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, let's begin with just a little bit of background. Uh, we learn from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, that uh, he was called by God to be a prophet in um, what was really a uh, magnificent moment in the history of Israel. 
the year that King Uzziah died. It was 740 BC, we know precisely. Uh, that, that's called the 8th century BC. You remember how the, the, the 740 is always the 8th century, all that sort of stuff? You, you know what I'm saying. Uh, it, it, on the whole, was a fabulous century for both parts of the split kingdom of God's people, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, on the world scene, there was something of a power vacuum. Egypt was in decline, that was the fading superpower. Assyria hadn't yet risen, that was the rising superpower. And there was just a period of a few decades right in the middle when there was no superpower around to boss the little guys about. And Israel was beautifully positioned smack in the middle of lucrative trade routes and so had a huge economic boom, about 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth. So Australia's not the first... No, it wasn't like that. A great time in Israel's history. And, of course, as all empires go, with economic boom, there came a serious military machine as well. And so Israel expanded her boundaries to recapture almost all of the glory days of 250 years earlier when David was king. Now, of course, if, like often in boom time, there were winners and there were losers, if there was a fair smattering of economic oppression, if there was a bit of religious wheeling and dealing, I mean, that's just the price of success, isn't it? In an empire. The boom didn't last too long. Assyria, as I said, was rising in the last third of the century and soon became very aggressively expansionary. In 734 BC, uh, Judah's, where Jerusalem is in, uh, in Judah, Judah's northern neighbours, Israel, and to the north of Israel, Syria, formed a defensive alliance against this rising superpower, Assyria, and tried to coerce Judah to the south to join the party. We'll read about this as we get on in uh, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, Judah was terrified and she reached out to Assyria effectively ending her independence and becoming a vassal state subject to grinding tax burden. In 722 BC, Israel in the north was completely wiped from the face of the earth, never again to be a people. Eventually, one of Judah's kings, Hezekiah, thought he saw an opportunity at a change of power structure in Assyria. He rebelled and sought to get independence again, but he was crushed without mercy and Judah likewise was almost wiped out in 701 BC. So that, that's all in the future from, from right now. Right now the glory days are rolling as Isaiah begins his ministry in 740. Glorious, that is, economically and militarily, but disastrous spiritually and socially. And chapter 1 describes this spiritual context. Uh, it's interesting, um, the, the, the words of this uh, chapter are undated. They, they function, in a sense, as like an overture in a symphony, a prologue or preface to the whole prophecy and describe the overall situation into which Isaiah was sent. Listen to how he starts. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken... I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its master and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who've forsaken the Lord, who've despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. Now, this is what you might call a vigorous start to a book. Uh, Isaiah takes uh, what is most, the most fundamental and basic description of what it is to belong to God, that is to be his children, children whom he has reared, but instead of it being a joyous privilege, it's the basis of an accusation. For these children, those who owe their lives to their heavenly father, they have rebelled. It's contrary to all nature. Here are hard hearts in the face of grace. This is a nation of Israel called to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, according to Moses, and yet now not a holy nation, but rather a sinning nation, Isaiah says. These are God's people, the great covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And instead they become a people heavy, kind of dripping with iniquity. These are the offspring, or literally the seed of, it's, it's the very same term used of God's promise to Abraham. But instead of being the people of covenant, uh, God's covenant goodness, they are now the offspring of evil. These children of God, reared by the Lord himself, are now corrupted and rotten at the core. Now, this is um, hardly a... First paragraph designed to win friends and influence people. Uh, and, but we learn three incredibly important things about the, the nature of what's kind of wrong at the core of human beings. Uh, the first thing is that sin is only sin in the context of a relationship. Uh, it's very important. Uh, the, the Christian word for, for we use, or the, the Bible word, is sin. Whether you like that word or not, it actually doesn't matter terribly much. Uh, I don't think you have to be too insightful to see that there's kind of something wrong with people. Uh, we find it difficult to be uh, pleasant to our neighbours, let alone to love our enemies. Um, and, and the Bible has a very interesting take on this. It says sin is only sin in the context of relationship, which is why, very importantly, sin in the Bible has almost nothing to do with morality or ethics as such. <coughs> Morality is about an abstract moral code, a code which a person might or might not fulfill in various circumstances. There are all sorts of moral systems, all sorts of ethical systems that's got nothing to do with Christianity. Sin, properly understood, is about a relationship. In this case, the relationship of a father to children. And the failure to live rightly or to live righteously in that relationship. And, and the flip side of it's true as well, therefore. Um, no relationship, no sin. That makes sense, right? If sin is about relationship, no relationship, no sin. Which is why, strictly speaking, it's wrong to say that becoming a Christian is about entering a relationship with God. No. 
there is already a relationship that everybody has with God, a fundamental relationship, actually, that of creator to creature. And it's precisely, crucially, because of that relationship that there is such a thing as sin and not mere morality. At the same time, this is also why it really matters to keep saying that evolution, which is perhaps a clever little insight into an interesting historical mechanism, absolutely has to be resisted from being turned into some sort of grand explanation which does away with the need for a creator. That's just a nonsense. Darwin knew it well enough that it did no such thing. It's perfectly consistent to hold that God uses a little mechanism throughout the eons of history as our creator, but that the fundamental relationship of creature to creator is in place. So the first thing to say is that sin is relational. Don't get trapped, don't get caught into thinking in a secular manner about sin. Which therefore leads to the second thing to say, and and perhaps the truest thing to say about sin, is that it is stupid. That's the point of the comparison to the animals in this first paragraph. Even the butt-stupid animals know where their provision comes from. But Israel doesn't. Precisely because the Lord is Israel's father, rebelling against him is utterly self-destructive. It is a sad, stupid thing to do. It's really interesting. Uh, So often, the Bible's word for sinners is fools. Tragic fools. It's a desk lamp unplugging itself, the yo-yo cutting its own string off, all in the name of a glorious, self-destructive independence. So sin is about relationship. Uh, Most of all, sin is foolish. But then uh, thirdly, what that means is that what God is looking for, what constitutes genuine religion, genuine spirituality, is precisely that relationship lived out truly. And all that that means, love and loyalty and understanding and concern and hope and trust. The word that Isaiah uses is an unbelievably bold word. He wants the people of Israel to know God. Uh, The the word to know, the verb to know here is a a, a verb of a word of intimacy of an astonishing nature. You you may remember Adam knew Eve. Uh, It's a euphemism, actually. You you, you get the idea of a euphemism. Uh, When we talk about sleeping with someone, uh, it usually has very little to do with sleep. Right? That's not what we're talking about. And that's what it is to know. And Isaiah says that the thing that God is after in us is nothing less than to know him. Not to have some good ideas. Not even to be a good person. Certainly not just to do some Christian or religious rituals. To be one of God's people is to know him. And Israel has sinned horribly and stupidly and relationally. Now in love, uh, the Lord has disciplined this, his nation and his people, the offspring of the covenant, his own children. Verse 5, uh, why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. 
The language is not to our taste, I understand that. But the sense is plain, like all good parents discipline children they love. So God has disciplined Israel, but discipline never deals with a hard heart. That's the point. Discipline will never get through a hard heart. They're sick from head to toe, rebellious in heart and destined for disaster. Now, what's really interesting is, uh, so far, Isaiah has not said what Israel's done wrong. Right? Just, uh, there's just this sort of pronouncement of judgment, but, but what is it that Israel's done? I mean, what could possibly provoke this kind of stunning spiritual indictment by Isaiah? Is, is, is Israel worshipping foreign gods? Is that what's happening? Has she abandoned the Lord and the worship that he commanded? Actually, it's exactly the opposite. That's why what Isaiah says here is so powerful. Because it's their very worship by the book. It's their very religious observance that has become corrupted. What Isaiah sees is not false worship, but heartless worship. And God hates it. Listen to verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. Um, New moon is the monthly uh, religious festivals, Sabbath is the weekly, going to church, calling of convocation, that's like Easter and Christmas, annual festivals, okay? I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates, they've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Now, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, I, Isaiah has got us, who asked this from your hand and of course you know what the answer is right the lord did you told us to do this stuff it's by the lord's own command that they make burnt offerings and keep special days and now Isaiah says god hates it what's gone wrong has the lord just kind of changed his mind because he's having a bad day now, what you see here is the corruption of true religion. Uh, it, it can happen in Israel. It can happen in the church. I think this is a temptation that is particularly present to religious people. You see, uh, for Israel, the law, the, the Torah, the, all that whole sort of sacrificial system and holy days and festivals, they were always meant to be about the heart. And the point is that without the heart, if they're just done alongside a hard, cold heart, then they're just empty vessels. They decline, degenerate into first formalism and then hypocrisy. Formalism is when the substance is confused with the form. Uh, one uh, person this morning said it's huff and puff without the stuff. It's just got all the, the show, but there's no heart in it. 
when you think what matters is the outward and visible sign rather than the inward and spiritual reality. You read your Bible. Oh, yes, you read your Bible. But you read your Bible because, well, you know you ought to read your Bible. And there's little to no humble, patient openness of the heart to the Word of God. Uh, you go to church. You say your prayers. You do your Christian thing. But really, it's more about the approval of others or, or being part of a community or actually, even more subtly, feeling good about yourself. And what you see here is that formalism is only one step away from hypocrisy. And that's what's going on in Israel. A terrible, terrible hypocrisy, which is saying one thing and then doing another. Professing the Lord of love, living in indifference and lovelessness towards others. Professing the Lord of truth, but shaving the truth when it suits. And make no mistake, Isaiah could not be clearer than he is here. The Lord hates formalism and the Lord hates hypocrisy. The Lord wants nothing less than the fullness of your heart. And anything less than your heart is repulsive to God. Let me tell you a story. I know of someone uh, seriously smart, seriously successful. Uh, he made enough money to retire early, and so uh, he thought, well, how am I going to spend my days? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and serve God. I'm going to enroll in a theology course. And so he enrolls. He genuinely loves to study but people get the sense when they're with him that mostly what he loves is to be right. When he was in high school, he was on the debating team and he never really kind of left the debating team. He approaches conversations like a lawyer in a courtroom marshalling evidence to prove his case. He is superb. Superb at pointing out the flaws in people who disagree with him. And especially his wife whose sense of herself has gradually atrophied during their marriage. He wins many arguments. He has an astonishing gift for sarcasm. He has a way of communicating, you know, you know, this sort of person, just their tone of voice, their dismissive gestures, even just the angle of his head that drips with impatience and disdain and condescension. He takes himself and his opinions with deadly seriousness. And he's very alone. He keeps winning arguments and losing friends. He doesn't seem to realise that every time people are with him, they come away just a little emotionally bruised. Did you see on the outside? He is offering his sacrifices. He's keeping his new moons and his Sabbaths He's even gone to Bible college for crying out loud. Does it get more holy than that? Actually, I won't tell you about Bible college. But the Lord says of him, the Lord says of Israel, and maybe the Lord says of us here, my soul hates that stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. But the Lord is not finished with his people. He never gives up. 
And so point two, there is the therefore of cleansing judgment. Verse 24, therefore says the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will pour out my wrath on my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I'll turn my hand against you. I'll smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your ally and I'll restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Uh, Here is another key thought uh, in uh, the book of Isaiah. And I want to get at this by asking a a question of how you typically uh, think. Uh, The question is this, how do you understand the judgment of God to relate to the salvation of God? How do you understand the judgment of God to relate to the salvation of God? Because normally we see these as alternatives. Either you're judged or you're saved. And in fact, what you're saved from is the judgment. But that's not Isaiah's view, did you notice? That's not Isaiah's view. Actually, it's not the Bible's view at all. Judgment here is the pathway to salvation. The means of salvation. Salvation comes about as a result of judgment precisely because what judgment does is to destroy that which is sick and foul, the dross and the alloy. There's more to say about this and we'll come to it in the next weeks. But it's worth kind of hearing this just as a preliminary thesis for us. The Lord says that he is going to put Israel through the fire. And I don't know, uh, you know, you kind of need to feel the significance of this. The fire hurts. It always hurts. It will burn up what is impure in our lives. But it will leave what is faithful. And then Israel will be all that she was called to be. Chapter 2, verse 2. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us of his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you see just what a the glorious vision this is of, of Jerusalem? In place of hypocritical worship, there'll be true worship. The mountain of the Lord's house will be lifted up, established as the highest of all the mountains. A place of reliable, heartfelt faithfulness to the Lord. The nations will come streaming in. The instruction, the the, the law, the Torah will go out. No more formalism. No more hypocrisy. And as a result, in place of a corrupt national life, there'll be true prosperity and peace. Implements of violence will become implements to farm vegetables. And war, war which threatens Judah all round, will be no more. All right, let's draw the threads together for tonight. This is the message that Isaiah will bring to us as we work through his uh, remarkable prophecy. God's great grace in creation. 
sin as this terrible relational breach and judgment through which comes salvation. It's rich and full and challenging and powerful. It will exercise our every spiritual insight to understand and more than understand to take deeply into the core of our souls. But if we let it do its work on us, we will be the richer for it. But even tonight, let's hear this word to us. Because it really is written to God's people. The challenge that Isaiah makes is simply this. God has thrown every blessing at us that is possible. And even more than Isaiah knew. He has not withheld his own son. And there's the key, you see, because even by Jesus' time, Isaiah was still hard-hearted. Did you feel the unbelievable pain and sharpness of those woes in Matthew 23? Because what can soften hard hearts? What can soften hard hearts? There's only one thing that will ever change a heart, and that's grace. Pure, unmerited, free grace. The grace of the Son of God, crucified on that cross, precisely so that salvation comes through judgment. Our salvation through his judgment. And as you take that into your heart, as you allow it to become the consuming passion of your life, as you see Jesus in all his glory, in all his agony, it will melt your heart. And what will emerge in your life from that kind of softness is the fruit that God longs to see beautiful, glorious, spiritual fruit dripping from the branches of your life. A character formed in the image of Christ, full of love and tenderness to others, full of others, full of truth and holiness to the Lord. A patience, a kindness, a joyfulness in life, and most of all, an unbelievable facility to repent to always 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 assume first and second and third that the problem lies with me a penitent heart when you have a heart that's melted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ crucified there'll be a correspondence between the inside and the outside you see There won't be any formalism. There won't be any pretending. There won't be any hypocrisy. Instead, there'll just be a love for him and his word and his presence and his people. Amen.